Today's New Testament reading is from James 4, 1 through 12. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It is not this, that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive, because you ask wrongly, to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? One Ancient Hope, it's, it's good to be with you this morning. And especially on that note, I, for my whole family, I just want to give a word of, of thank you to the congregation. We had some, some ceiling issues this week and... Um, the love and the support has really meant the world to us through visits, advice, meals, uh, flowers, childcare. Um, I think the only thing we didn't have was some up sh- someone show up in, in sackcloth and ashes to come and, and mourn with us. Not, not to give you any ideas, but, uh, but we really, really, really appreciate it. We are so grateful to be a part of this community. Towards that end, let, it's, let us pray together. Um, God, our Father, we thank you for the church. We thank you, Lord, that this is a community founded on your grace, a community founded on your gospel. Um, Be with us, Lord, as we dig into your gospel today, the gift that is your word, that creates, that calls, that crafts the church. Bless these words. Uh, Help them to be true to your intentions uh, to this passage and work them deeply into our hearts, into our hands, uh, into our heads, Father God. Amen. Well, uh, in this passage, James asks us a very important question. He wants us to look at what causes fights and quarrels in the church community. And once again, as James has done many, many times before, he draws our attention to the words that we speak. And in particular, he shows us that the words that we speak can be vehicles of life or vehicles for death. He warns us against the pride that kills our neighbor with our words, and he commends to us the humility that that seeks to give life to our neighbor and even to exalt our neighbor. And towards that end, I want to look at this passage under three headings, all focusing on the words that we speak. The first is words as murder. The second is words as mass murder. And the third is words of life. Let's first look at words as murder. Look with me at James 4, 1 through 3. 
James says the following, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, it's important to note here that what is translated as you desire is actually the, the verbal form of that word uh, epithumia, which we saw in James 1.14. And this is a kind of over-desire, if you remember. It's a disordered desire. It's, it's seeking, desiring, loving something in creation— more than the creator. It's giving something in creation the love that only God deserves. But James in this passage pushes us further in this ordering. He's telling us that, that these goods that God has given to us, that we should love, should not only be ordered to God, but they should be ordered to our neighbor. But, but then he takes an interesting turn. In this conversation, he warns us against murder. So we have to ask ourselves, what is this relation between disordered love for our neighbor and murder? Well, Augustine is particularly helpful here. Augustine actually addresses the topic of murder. And he asks, what happens when a murder is committed? Well, the first thing we do is we look for a reason or a motive. It might be the case that a person could do a murder without that, but Augustine doesn't think so. He says a person would not commit murder for no reason but the sheer delight of killing. Rather, Augustine tells us, when there is an inquiry to discover why a crime has been committed, normally no one is satisfied until it has been shown that the motive might have been either the desire of gaining or the fear of losing one of those goods which I said were of the lowest order. So what Augustine is telling us is that we murder when we love some lesser good, some good gift of creation, more than the greater good of our neighbor. In fact, we desire that thing so much that we're actually willing to take the life of our neighbor, either to get that good for ourselves or to keep our neighbor from taking it away from us. Augustine says, the murderer did it because he wanted his victim's wife or estates for himself so that he might live on the proceeds of robbery. Or maybe he did it because he was afraid that the other might defraud him or because he had been wronged and was burning for revenge. We have to remember that God calls us to two great commandments. Two great commandments frame the Christian life, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and also to love our neighbor as ourselves. These just are the two great aims of the human life. And therefore, everything that we have, every good gift from God, should be directed towards those two aims. Should be directed toward loving God, our very greatest good, and also to loving our neighbor, which is our second greatest good. Augustine gives us a list of, of lesser goods in this description. He tells us of sexual intimacy, material resources, finances, reputation, and status. But he warns us that if we love these things more than our neighbor, well, then we're actually on the path to murder. No longer is our neighbor someone that we love by way of these lesser goods, 
But our neighbor becomes some thing, some object that we use to get these lesser goods. The neighbor becomes either a pathway or an obstacle. Recall what James said. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, and so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. So someone reading this might say, fair enough. Yes, I have loved wrongly. Yes, I have loved lesser goods more than my neighbor. But certainly, I would never, ever murder my neighbor. So I can just kind of put this passage on the shelf. But remember an earlier sermon uh, when James mentioned murder before. We looked at how James's notion of murder is pulled directly from the Sermon on the Mount. And this is important, right? Because James, according to the flesh, according to biology, is the brother of Jesus. James is likely the very first document written in the New Testament. Even more, it's very likely that James himself could have heard the Sermon on the Mount. So when James talks about murder, he's thinking about what Christ said. Remember that in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ tells us that each dismissive and disparaging word is tantamount to murder. Christ says, whoever says you full will be liable to the hell of fire. Christ is showing us the full standard of God's law, the full comprehensive contours of God's ethics. And this notion of murder, this high standard of ethics, is in James's mind as he writes about murder here. Because the way that he presents it is following Christ. Murder, in this sense, is not only literally taking someone's life. Ask yourself, do you think it was really the case that the people that James is writing to, uh, people like us who are reading it, is, is murder really a problem in our congregation? Do you think homicide was running rampant in the communities that James was talking to? Probably not. That's why he directs us to fights and quarrels. And in fights and quarrels, we have a tendency to murder our neighbor with our words. Remember, each dismissive and disparaging word, Christ tells us, is tantamount to murder. But why? Why is it the case that this is a kind of murder? Well, remember, the reason we murder is because we seek some lesser good, some good gift of creation, so much, and so much more than our neighbor, that we're willing to take the life of our neighbor to get it. We want something our neighbor has or something that our neighbor keeps us from getting. And so, we're willing to kill the neighbor to get it. This not need be a literal murder because the kind of murder that James speaks about here follows the very same principle. Instead of using our goods to love our neighbor, we use our neighbor to get some other good. We instrumentalize our neighbor. Think of an example. Perhaps we have a friend and we befriend this particular person because of the professional connections, the career advancement that this neighbor can open up for us. We've instrumentalized that person. What we're doing is using that person as a means to get something. We're using the greater good of our neighbor to get the lesser good of a job or a career. And in so doing, we commit a murder in our heart. 
to be sure, a job is a very, very good gift from God. It's to be received gratefully, but it's a lesser good than the gift of our neighbor. However, we can go further because both Jesus and James warn that a common means by which we murder the neighbor are our words. A dismissive, disparaging word saying you fool is tantamount to murder. And so we have to ask, why is it that we often talk to our neighbors like this? Why do we often write off our neighbor as stupid, as not enlightened, as not worth our time? Well, often it's a way to keep us from examining ourselves, to keep us from examining our own sin, our own guilt, even our own harmful practices. Ask yourself, who are the people that I'm most likely to dismiss? Who are the people that I'm most likely not to give a fair listen to? Who are the persons that I'm most likely to simply write off as foolish? Well, there's a chance that you might be using your words to murder them. You might be using dismissive or disparaging words to keep them at a distance. This is important because words are a very good gift from God, but they're a lesser good than our neighbor. We're, use, we're meant to use words to love our neighbor, to, to make a relationship to our neighbor, to bring us closer to our neighbor. But if we're using our words to keep the neighbor away from us, to protect us from the discomfort of our own sins, well, then words have become a means of murder. Words have become a means by which we justify ourselves and condemn the neighbor. How does this work out? Well, that brings us to our second point, words as mass murder. Look with me at James 2, 11 through 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? What is James telling us here? How does speaking evil against our neighbor make us a judge? Even more, how does doing this serve to overrule the law of God in our hearts? Well, when we speak evil against our neighbor, we're weighing the neighbor against our own ethical standards. We're judging our neighbor from our own personal place of judgment. And this is not to say that persons should not be held accountable for sins or acts of injustice. They absolutely should. But the important thing here is that when we are called to account by the law of God, we are never murdered. We are never disparaged, dismissed, nor dehumanized. We are loved. Because being called to account by the law of God is an action of love. It would be unloving to cease to call our neighbor to repent and to face the consequences of our sin. The law of God always finds its, its ultimate aim in reconciliation and in restoration. But those can be a painful process. And importantly, the law of God calls absolutely everyone to account. This is not to say that every sin is equally grievous in the eyes of God. The Westminster Standards tells us that certain sins are more grievous than to God. 
to be sure, it's a more grievous sin to murder your neighbor with your hands rather than to murder your neighbor with your heart. But all of us are guilty of the latter, and both of those sins fall under the merciful forgiveness of God. But this is not the case when we are the lawmakers. When we are the lawmakers, we abandon both the love of the offender and the comprehensiveness of the law. When we are the lawmakers, we are both loveless and limited. We are loveless to the offender, and we are limited in the roster of offenses. We become very skilled at condemning the neighbor and pardoning ourselves, because we tend to cast the law, the proper form of the human life, in a way that affirms our own lifestyle and ethically condemns that of the neighbor. And in our present condition, one of the most prevalent ways that this happens is probably political rhetoric. And to be sure, this happens across the political spectrum. And I'm not saying to, to avoid or to listen to certain news outlets or anything like that. But in what follows, I want to warn all of us against embracing certain narratives that tends to underlie political rhetoric in America. For example, the, the Atlantic recently had an article talking about uh, a news outlet often associated with the right. And they talked about an essential narrative that underlines much of the media. Quote, the you and the they locked in unending combat. And the they are those who intend to, quote, destroy your families, your lives, and your future. The you are wholly in the right. The they are wholly in the wrong. In fact, they are your enemies. It is not our own selfishness or sin or greed or hours on Netflix or working through dinner or a lack of commitment to friendships and community or being generally checked out during family time that is destroying our families, our lives, and our future. It is them. We understand how this can make us feel better if the main problem in my relationships and all my endeavors is someone else, then I, I don't have to confess my guilt. I don't have to repent. I don't have to change my behavior. If they are the main problem, I simply need to keep watching. We might, be, we might bemoan the loss of family values, but do our actions actually communicate that we value our family? And of course, this is a bipartisan affair, one that transcends the political spectrum. I take, for example, uh, an instance offered by Charles Taylor. And this is his account of um, one of his friends from Thailand who went to visit a, a left-leaning political party in Germany. And Taylor recounts that experience as such. Quote, he confessed to utter bewilderment. He thought he understood the goals of the political party, peace between human beings, and a stance of respect and friendship by humans toward nature. But what astonished him was all the anger, the tone of denunciation, of hatred toward the established parties. These people didn't seem to see that the first step towards their goal would have to involve stilling the anger and aggression in themselves. He couldn't understand what they were up to. And to be sure, this resonates with the American context as well. In both of these examples, we find an underlying narrative of us versus them. It's the hatred and aggression of the other 
not the hatred and aggression that's there in our own heart. They are called to account, and we are pardoned. In much modern political rhetoric across the political spectrum, we find an urge to become our own lawmakers, to become our own judge, to condemn those with whom we disagree, and to free ourselves of the guilt and the consequences of our sin. This is not to say that Christians should not be involved in politics. This is not to say that Christians should not take political positions. They should. Christians should be engaged in civic society. Rather, what this means is that we cannot allow politics to be our salvation. We cannot allow politics to define our notion of guilt and to be the means by which we clear and pardon ourselves from that guilt, by which we say they are guilty and we are not. That is a salvation built upon the murder of the other. Who is the greatest threat to our family, our life, and our future? They are. Who is the greatest threat to our peace, to our friendship, to our environment? They are. We are good. They are bad. Political rhetoric, in this sense, becomes a kind of, of theory, a way that we ease our consciences, that it's not us who are guilty for any of the woes in the world, it's them. It's a way to avoid examining our own heart, our own guilt, our own sin. But when God is judge and lawmaker, he does not let us bypass any sin at all. Who is the greatest threat to our family, to our life, to our future, to our peace, to our friendship? It's not them, however we might be tempted to define that group. It's us. It's me, and it's you. As the Soviet dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn famously wrote, quote, If it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And to be sure, this is the very judgment of God. As James tells us, who are you to judge your neighbor? And this is not to say that persons should not be held to account, but they should be held to account by the law of God a law that judges both us and neighbor. We never judge the neighbor without judging ourselves. Um, I heard a, a story recently from a pastor, and he was talking to someone, and you know, the question was, you know, how do you minister to people whose particular sin might be a sin that you um, are disgusted by, one that you would never want to touch? And the pastor's answer was, by being more disgusted by your own sin. And that's the judgment of the law of God, that we ourselves are the chief of sinners. But when we are the lawmakers, we limit the categories, we set the deck so that we are right and they are wrong. But this is not the way of God's comprehensive justice. Consider, for uh, instance, the book Compassion and Conviction. It's, it's written by the, ad, uh, the AND campaign, and it means to be a kind of, of primer for, for Christians um, in the act of civil engagement. And they pose a number of either-or questions, a, uh, a series of problematic human alternatives. 
And these are as, as follows. These are the, the questions they put forward. Do you advocate social justice or family values? Do you support women or are you against abortion? Do you love the poor or do you believe in personal responsibility? The readers then advise, the authors then uh, advise readers as follows. Quote, don't answer those questions or at least not in the way that they're asked. They're based on a false premise and thus create a false dilemma for Christians. This is what happens when we allow the world to frame the questions and the issues for us. We end up choosing one of two wrong answers or rejecting one, uh, one of two right answers. Part of getting the correct answer is about framing the questions correctly. And as the authors note, God commands us to justice in both the family and in society. He commands us to support both the rights of women and of the unborn. He commands us to actively seek the good of the poor, working against systems that entrench persons in poverty. And he commands from each of us the dignity of personal agency and responsibility. His justice is not an either-or justice. His is a both-and justice. It's not either us or them that God calls to account, but both us and them, however we might be tempted to define those categories. Because the temptation is to murder our neighbor, to act as a judge and lawmaker whereby we deem ourselves righteous and we lay all of the unrighteousness in the world, all the problems and woes upon our neighbor. Which brings us to the third point, the words of life. Look with me at James 4, 7 through 10. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So here we find three points, and I, I want to move through these quickly. We find the exhortation to resist the devil and submit to God, to weep, and repent, and to humble yourself and be exalted. And all of these actually connect with what we've talked about so far and serve to tie them together. Resist the devil and submit to God. Remember that the temptation that the devil presented to Adam and Eve was to be their own lawmakers, to determine good and evil on their own terms without any reference to God. But to submit to God is to recognize and acknowledge God as judge and lawmaker. To recognize that he alone deems what is good and what is evil. Weep and repent. When we are our own lawmakers, we avoid sin and guilt. We make laws in our hearts that clear ourselves and put the blame upon them. But when we accept the law of God, we embrace a comprehensive justice, one in which all of us are guilty, including ourselves. And this is a hard truth, and we have to look squarely at it. And when we do, there's only one proper response, to weep and to repent. Humble yourself and be exalted. In weeping and repenting, we are humbled. We are called to account, and we acknowledge our own sin. 
We refuse to lay all of the blame for the woes in the world upon the other, upon any group we might be tempted to dislike. Yes, our neighbor is guilty, but so are we. But the question is, what do we do with that guilt? And that brings us to the second part of that statement. Humble yourselves and be exalted. Be exalted. Why is it that confessing and acknowledging our sins would lead us to be exalted? This doesn't seem to make any sense at all. Well, the only thing that can make sense is the gospel. For there was one who was killed, and killed in such a way that he really did bear the guilt for all the woes of the world. He actually did what our murdering words seek to do but cannot. He actually died for our sins, the very thing that our disparaging and dismissive words seek to make our neighbor do for us. He actually did take all of our guilt upon him and make us righteous, clearing us from all of the guilt that we bear before God before his comprehensive law of justice, his comprehensive law of righteousness. But we must let Christ take our guilt upon him. We have to be humbled. We have to acknowledge our sin and put it upon his shoulders. He receives it willingly. He suffered the punishment of the cross to bear the penalty that all of our guilt deserves. But he offers more. He doesn't only receive our sin. He also gives us something. John Calvin calls this the wonderful exchange, wherein Christ, quote, taking the weight of our iniquity upon himself, which oppressed us, he has clothed us with his own righteousness. Christ takes our guilt from us, but he also gives us his own divine favor, the divine favor of the Son of God, wherein God looks upon us and sees the very righteousness of Christ himself. And so we can humble ourselves before God. We can confess our sins before God because God has exalted us with the very righteousness of Christ. And so he receives us as his own children. But there's something else. That also means that the church is a community founded upon Christ. We are a community that is both humbled and exalted. And this should reflect each and every aspect of our community life. We're not a community founded upon our own righteousness. Human righteousness is the righteousness of blaming one group so that our group can be cleared can be pardoned. It's a righteousness that comes from condemning certain persons and certain sins and overlooking other persons and other sins. And therefore, it's a kind of community that is always based on exclusion. There's always a they. If we found our community upon a particular political party, then there will always be the they of other political parties. If we found our community on a particular ideology, then there will always be the they of other ideologies. If we found our community upon a particular race, there will always be the they of other races. If we found our community upon the they of other economic classes, sorry, on economic classes, there will always be the they of other economic classes. But this is not the church. The church is founded only upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
And so it's a community that's humbled and exalted. It's a community wherein all of us are humbled, where we weep and we repent for our sins before God and neighbor. It's a community wherein we all acknowledge that we are guilty. Yet, we're also all exalted because by faith we've received the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. Therefore, no one, no one is excluded from the church. For no one is here by way of our own righteousness. There is no pride or means of exclusion. We are all a mess. We are all failures. And what a relief, what a rest it is to make that confession that the only reason for our boasting is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Thus, as a community, we are both humbled and exalted. Humbled because of our sins and exalted because of Jesus Christ. And for that reason, the church just is the most inclusive community. It welcomes absolutely everyone. The only condition is that we acknowledge our need to repent and to receive Jesus Christ. What does that mean for us now? Well, among other things, let us be a community that truly confesses our sins and confesses our faults to one another. Let us truly be humble. Let us truly repent and weep because of our sins. Perhaps someone, find someone in the church who you can regularly confess your sins to. Yet, let us also forgive these confessions of sins because Christ died for each and every sin that we confess. Let us remind each other of that. Let us exalt our brother and sister who was humbled in confession, for they are covered with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. So be humble, church, but also be exalted. This is the wonderful exchange of the gospel, and there is no sweeter word that we can hear. These alone are the words of life. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you that you have given us your Son, who has become our very own righteousness. Forgive us for the ways that we try to find our own righteousness by condemning certain groups and overlooking our own sins and our own faults. In the gospel, you have given us the freedom to be humbled, to mourn, to weep, and to repent, but also to be exalted because of the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.